Romans 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by her father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me then, why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you? a human being, to talk back to God. So what is formed, say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, 
though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Thanks, Alan. Now that might have felt a little deja vu-ish, uh, because Alan read that same passage just last week. How confusing. Um, there we go. Uh, but it's uh, for a purpose, for a reason. Uh, Liam preached last week topically. Uh, so though he preached chapter 9, uh, he was dealing particularly with election, uh, trying to get our heads around that. Uh, by the way, we will have a question time afterwards, uh, and we'll go as long as we have time for. And there's, of course, lots of room for discussion into the evening. So I'd love to keep chatting with you about this difficult topic. Uh, but last week, uh, Liam uh, spoke on this idea that God chooses, uh, that he chooses some Christians. Uh, and it's a pretty significant idea that comes up across the Bible. Uh, and it comes up particularly in chapter 9. Uh, so that's why last week we dedicated a week to, to think about it uh, in a more intensive way, uh, to tackle through that. Um, uh, and so this week, I'm going to preach through chapter 9 uh, without that uh, deliberateness of ta tackling election. Uh, it will, of course, come up um, because it's in the passage, it's a big part of the passage. Uh, but perhaps as we get to the end, you'll have some questions, some big questions, particularly if you weren't here last week. Uh, and so uh, I guess maybe hold on to those questions. Uh, we can talk after. Uh, I can recommend those books that Liam recommended again, uh, and we can chat through it. Uh, but this week, uh, all that to say, we're going to try and tackle Chapter 9 as, as a whole. Uh, we can try and look at what is it doing in Romans, uh, why is Paul telling us all this stuff, uh, and so we're going to try and do that without getting too bogged down in predestination, uh, if that's possible. Uh, and so as we come uh, to this start of chapter 9, it's worth uh, just very, very quickly recapping where we've been in Romans. Uh, and so, so far in Romans, uh, from the very beginning, it's really been about Paul explaining the gospel. Uh, and so we get that uh, right at the start. Have a look at these couple of verses from chapter 1. Uh, Paul writes this, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Uh, and really, from chapter 1, which we did last year, uh, right through to chapter 8, which uh, Alan led us through a couple of weeks ago, uh, Paul's been filling out the details of those verses. Uh, but now, as we come to chapter 9, we, we kind of come to a new section. Uh, they're still extrapolating a bit from there, but we see uh, a pretty significant shift in tone. Uh, and I think you really notice it if we read the last couple of verses from chapter 8, into the first couple of verses of chapter 9. Uh, so listen as I read. So end of chapter 8. For I'm, not, I, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And then into chapter 9, I speak the truth. In Christ, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it. Through the Holy Spirit, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's a jarring change, isn't it? It's a big shift. Uh, We go from this great celebration through to this uh, incredible sorrow. Uh, Well, why is it? Why do, do we see that shift? Uh, well, it comes as Paul moves to reflect on the state of Israel. Uh, that, so, that though some Jews have come to faith in Christ, most haven't. They're the minority now. Uh, so let me read on the next couple of verses. Uh, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. See, Paul laments that despite Israel's status as God's people throughout biblical history, at this point that he's writing, most are cut off from God by their rejection Uh, of the Messiah. Uh, Even though it was to them God gave his promises, uh, that he gave the law, that he gave the temple, it was from Israel that he raised up the patriarchs, and it was from Israel that came the Messiah. Jesus himself was from Israel. Yet despite all this, it seems that the Jews are are no longer God's people. Uh, They don't hold that same status. It's not about them anymore. Uh, And if you reflect on that, if you think about that, it raises a huge set of questions about God. Can we trust him? Maybe you didn't jump there, but but think about it. After uh, all, if he scrapped his people, the Jews, in favour of the Gentiles, who's to say he won't do it again? Who's to say we won't get ditched and he'll find some other group? Uh, And so throughout this section from chapters 9 through to 11, Paul is looking to answer that question of, well, what happened to Israel? Uh, And he begins with the big question, can we trust God? And that's what we're going to tackle today. Uh, And then over the next two weeks, we're going to keep going. So we'll do chapter 10 and then chapter 11. uh, And we'll keep seeing what what Paul has to tell us uh, about Israel. Keep digging into what happened to them now that Jesus has come. Uh, And so... Uh, Here's kind of the the flight plan for today. This is where we're heading. Uh, First, uh, we're going to orient ourselves in the passage uh, and make a short but important point that this is not just an academic discussion for Paul or or for us. Uh, It's something important for us uh, to realise that that as we ask the big questions of this passage, uh, and these are the objections we'll see, Paul, the author, is anticipating. So, so once we've seen it's not academic, we're going to see the questions that Paul uh, expects people to raise. The first one being, uh, has God's word failed? Uh, that's what Paul's going to ask. The second question he'll ask is, God unjust? Uh, thirdly, why does God still blame us? Uh, if God has chosen his people... Uh, If it's his choice, then then why do people wear any of the blame for that? Uh, Perhaps these are questions that you yourself are asking. And then as we always do, uh, we're going to finish with, so what? What does it mean for us today uh, as we see the answers to these questions?
Uh, and so before we get stuck into that heavy load, uh, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray particularly that God will give me his words to speak his truth. Uh, Lord, we want to thank you again for the book of Romans, uh, for the wonderful truths that it brings. And uh, we recognise that particularly this week we come across some hard truths. Uh, and so I pray that you'd give me clarity, that I'd speak your truth clearly, uh, and that you'd give us hearts eager to, to know your truth uh, and follow it. And we pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen. And so uh, that first little orienting point that I wanted to give us is to say that all this is not just academic. Uh, have a glance at those first few verses that we've already seen and, and notice the language that Paul uses. It's really clear, I think, in verse 3, uh, where he says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Those of my own race, the people of Israel. See, Paul is not working through some abstract idea. Uh, this stuff really matters. The people of Israel are not distant for him. They're his friends, his family. He is of Israel. He so passionately wishes they would, would be saved that, that he talks about trading his own salvation for their sake. Uh, that's how desperate he is to see something different happen. And when we speak about the ideas here in this passage, I think it's tempting to make it an intellectual discussion, to, to toss around ideas uh, as though it's just thoughts, uh, to, make, uh, to make it just a, a hypothetical conversation. But for us, like Paul, uh, this is personal. I'm not Jewish, uh, nor are many of my friends, uh, but... But we saw last week that this passage tackles more than just Jews and Gentiles as we grapple with God's sovereign choice. As we think about people who are saved and people who are cut off, it matters. Uh, we're, we're talking about friends and family, about people who are around us. Uh, and, and we aren't just spectators in that. Uh, when it comes to these ideas, I want to give you an illustration to help you think about it. Uh, a tired illustration of mine, of CrossFit. Uh, it was not long ago that Kirst and I were sitting down and we were watching the CrossFit Games. Uh, quite an athletic spectacle. Uh, you may be surprised to hear that Kirst and I weren't invited to participate this year. Do you know, I'm going off script, but those dumbbells they're holding are 40 kilos. Isn't that incredible? Anyway, uh, suffice to say that, that we weren't invited. We just watched from the couch at home uh, usually snacking. There's something about watching high-performance athletes that makes me want to snack. Uh, but we watched, and as we watched, there was lots of speculation. There was lots of chat back and forth. Uh, and I reckon it's fair to say that the questions that Kirst and I were asking uh, are more or less the same questions that the athletes were asking. Uh, questions like, how much heavier a weight could so-and-so lift? How much faster would they need to run to come in first place? Uh, that kind of thing. But we need to acknowledge that the motivation for asking those questions is very different between Curse and I and the athletes. We asked out of interest, out of curiosity. I wonder, I wonder. And we did that as we tucked into our ice cream. But for the athletes, these questions had very real impacts. Uh, the answer to them had, had a an impact on how they win in the game. How heavy someone could lift might be the difference between first place and last place for them. How hard they push, the difference between crashing out and snatching victory. 
So they asked those questions uh, with a real weight to it, didn't they? The very same questions asked very differently. Uh, it matters if you've got skin in the game. I don't know if you've heard that expression. I want to encourage us to wrestle with these questions, not as spectators, but as people with skin in the game. We're not asking these questions for a bit of fun uh, or to abstractly ponder the truth, but we're, we're asking because we want to make it through to the finish line, because we care about the outcome of these things. We, we care what happens to our friends, our family, to us. Paul is in anguish uh, and he's dealing with, with these questions because he recognises that as we grapple with them, the answers will help sustain us, help get us through to the end. And so with that in mind, uh, we're going to grapple with them. We're going to ask these questions uh, and see what God has to say. Uh, and the first one is, has God's word failed? Uh, now, it seems extreme, but, but that's the question that Paul is anticipating the Romans asking. That's why he jumps to it. Uh, you can see it really clearly there in verse 6. Uh, he says exactly that. It's not as though God's word had failed. This is the, the crux of the worry. Uh, if God promised to make Israel his chosen people, and now most of Israel aren't among his chosen people, hasn't God's word failed? How can we trust anything that he tells us? How can we trust any of the promises that he makes to us? Uh, and so Paul answers the question uh, with two examples from Israel's history. Uh, first with the sons of Abraham uh, and then on to the sons of Isaac. Uh, so we'll keep reading from verse at uh, the end of verse 6. Uh, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children of by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Uh, now Paul, uh, Paul's point is that though uh, the nation of Israel is often re referred to as the sons of Abraham, you can have a flick through the Gospels, you'll see that term come up. Uh, and they call that because they, tra they trace their lineage to Abraham himself. But it's not quite accurate, is it? Uh, because, of course, Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael and he had Isaac. But as Paul points out, the descendants of Ishmael are not included in the nation of Israel. Only the descendants of Isaac, because those are the children of the promise. The point is God's people are not simply those of a particular ancestry, uh, but those who God has chosen. Uh, and this isn't new. It's always been that way. Uh, so Paul doubles down to show this truth. His second example, the children of Isaac. Uh, so have a look from verse 10. Uh, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, and so once again we see two sons, but only one whose descendants are considered to be part of Israel. 
And where you might have argued that Ishmael was an illegitimate son uh, and so rightly excluded, we, we can't bring that argument here, can we? Uh, these are twins, uh, same mother and father. The Greek's quite explicit that it's the same act that, create, that, that brought them forth. Uh, but only one was chosen. Uh, more than that, it was the second son, the, the seemingly undeserving son, and chosen before they were born, before one or the other could exclude themselves by their behaviour. Now, the point of all this is to demonstrate that God's word hasn't failed. It was always the case that it wasn't about being born in the right family. It's about God's grace. As Paul said in verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Uh, and we see it right through Israel's history that there's this carving off, uh, that only some come through. The northern and southern kingdoms split and, and only the southern is what we call Israel. Uh, and then again, Judah is exiled and only a remnant return. That's what those uh, last references uh, that Alan got to at the end there, that, that was what that was about, that there's this pairing off, this remnant that is left. Not all are children of the promise. Uh, now I've given you fill-in-the-blank words on your handouts. Maybe that it helps you. Uh, but you can see there the first one, you can fill it out now, is grace, not race. It's not about the family that you belong to. It's not about your ancestry. It's God's grace. Uh, and seeing that, the natural response is to come to the next question, which we see Paul anticipates. Uh, our second point, is God unjust? Uh, so it's there uh, in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Paul says, not at all. If God is choosing people uh, to be included as part of his chosen people before they are born, before they have a chance to do anything good or bad, isn't that unjust? Uh, listen to what Paul says. What then shall we say is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, uh, but on God's mercy. Uh, is God unjust, or, or perhaps the word we'd more likely use is fair? Uh, and that's because it feels unfair, isn't it? Doesn't it? Uh, isn't it unfair that God would choose Jacob or Esau before they'd even been born? Uh, and Paul's answer is to show that this isn't a question of justice. It's not a question of fairness. It's a question of mercy. And uh, so if you're filling in the blanks, that's the next one. Mercy, not justice. Uh, now, Liam spoke to this somewhat last week, so I won't give it a ton of time. Uh, and if you missed that, it's well worth going back to. Uh, but the point is that we should be very careful in asking God for justice. Remember, Paul has spent a good chunk of the earlier parts of Romans showing that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all uh, deemed guilty. And this is a good reminder as we wrestle through these ideas that what we want isn't justice. Because justice uh, amounts to each one of us being judged guilty. That's what fair would look like that we all are condemned. But instead of justice, God gives mercy. Take Jacob and Esau. Uh, when we take a look at their lives, uh, we don't find that one was a top bloke and the other not so much, and that's how things worked out. 
the reality is that both were scoundrels. Both were nasty characters. Neither was deserving, and yet God extends mercy. Uh, verse 16 says, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And that's a wonderful verse, I think. Because if it did depend on human desire or effort, the reality is none of us would make it. And so mercy is a wonderful thing. Mercy, not justice. Uh, Paul continues uh, with an example in Pharaoh from the book of Exodus. Uh, we read that in verse 16. Uh, it says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Uh, Pharaoh gives us an example of someone who God didn't give mercy, but instead allowed Pharaoh to be a testimony of God's power, and ultimately through that God showed uh, mercy to many others, uh, and through that he brought about his purpose. Uh, and so, of course, that brings us to one more question. Why does God still blame us? Uh, so there in verse 19, uh, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Uh, and now the thing that I find particularly interesting as we get to this question is that Paul does not at all go in the direction that I would go. Uh, if you ask me that question, uh, I'd be really quick to try and point out some of the nuance of what's going on here. Uh, so if you ask me that question, I, I'd find it very helpful to point out uh, that when it comes to Pharaoh, the example that he used, uh, to note that when we read through Exodus, we get a really interesting back and forth, uh, that it doesn't just say God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it actually bounces back between God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Uh, and so we recognise, uh, as we see that, that there's an interplay going on that, uh, between our choices and responsibility and what God is doing. Uh, that to say it's simply fate is far too simplistic uh, from what the Bible gives us. Uh, in fact, next week we'll continue this theme of Israel and we'll zoom in on where they've failed in their response to God. So their responsibility is there. Uh, and we'll see God's sovereignty working hand in hand with our responsibility. I, I might say something like that. Uh, I might also uh, answer the question by pointing out that God not only chooses some, but puts his money where his mouth is. He doesn't only choose us, but redeems us through Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, we talked about the difference between a spectator and a, a participant before. Well, God is most definitely not a spectator. His mercy comes at a huge cost to himself. That gives us uh, a bit of a sense of, of God's investment in what's going on, his care for us, his love for us. Now, that's how I would answer, but it's not how Paul does. Have a look at how Paul answers the question. Uh, so from verse 20, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what his form say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? So we find gentler answers like the ones I would give elsewhere in the Bible. But here Paul gives us 
uh, something else. He gives us a firm warning to remember who we are and who God is. God is the potter and we are the clay. God is the creator and we are the created thing. That's our last fill in the blank. Clay, not potter. Paul's warning is against us presuming that we know better than God. Uh, to help us think about it, I'm going to pop a video on screen. Uh, you may have seen it before. It's a video that's been floating around for a long time, uh, and it's not the greatest quality. Uh, but I think it helps give us a sense of, of what this warning is doing. So I'll pop it up and have a look. Again, this is the USS Montana requesting that you immediately divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Over. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. This is Captain Hancock. You will divert your course. Over. Negative, Captain. I'm not moving anything. Change your course. Over. And so. This is the USS Montana, the second largest vessel in the North Atlantic Fleet. You will change course 15 degrees north, or I will be forced to take measures to ensure the safety of this ship. Over! This is a lighthouse, mate. It's your call. Hello? Captain? I think he's gone. Fair enough. It's fantastic, isn't it? Uh, I think Paul is warning us to be wary of being that US Navy ship. I think we can come to a part of the Bible like this one, full of bravado, confident that we know best. But like that ship, we need to be humbled. Uh, we need to recognise that we are the ship and God is the coastline. We are the clay, but he is the potter. Uh, I've seen time and time again as we come to this part of Scripture Someone read through it, read what it says, uh, and though they might not use exactly these words, they effectively say something like, that can't be right, I know better. But think about what's going on there. That's the clay, the created thing, saying to the potter, the very one who made it, the very one who made this planet, who created man in the first place, who gave them a brain to reason with, that you've got it wrong and I've got it right. It's outrageous, isn't it? God is God and we are not. And from time to time we need to be reminded of that. We need to let that his truth guide us and not the other way around. And now that's not to say that this is about blind trust, uh, nor is it to say that we shouldn't ask questions and try to figure it out. Paul's anticipating that we ask questions. It's, it's a healthy, good thing to do. Uh, this is a hard truth and so worth us working hard at. But at the same time, we need to recognise that God is God. And so we shouldn't presume that we can see things as clearly as he can. There's a reality that, that much of the time we simply won't know why God has chosen some and not others. Uh, we do get some clues. Uh, have a look at verse 22. Uh, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, 
even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Uh, We saw the example of Pharaoh, didn't we? Uh, we, He gives us some insight here into why Pharaoh wasn't chosen. But it's helpful to note here that what the story of Pharaoh did for God's people. Uh, Look again at verse 23. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? That's what we see in Pharaoh, isn't it? Uh, God made clear his power to act. He showed that he was in control, that nothing could stand in the way of him fulfilling his promises. Those who received mercy could see clearly that they'd been given it out of the hand of God himself. And we see it again in Jesus, don't we? God could have judged and wiped out every person who stood against Jesus on day one, but he didn't. Instead, with great patience, he let the Pharisees, King Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Romans bring about his saving work of mercy in Jesus' death on the cross. He demonstrated through them his power to defeat sin, even conquering death. It rings true as well in that famous verse we saw back in chapter 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Ultimately, this section, uh, though it's a warning, isn't here to scold us. It's here to reassure us, to give us confidence that this is true, that God is at work for our good. Uh, Likely, as we wrestle with this predestination stuff, uh, you're finding it hard going. Most do. But it's good to know that this passage is here to give us confidence rather than to shake us. Paul writes this in anguish for the lost people of his nation. And he's got much more to say about that over the next couple of chapters, which we'll dig into. Um, But what he says here, he says to help us grapple with that anguish that he's feeling. And so as we come to the end, the so what section, I want to finish by reflecting on what this passage should be helping us to feel. Uh, And I've got just two things, humility and confidence. Firstly, as we read through this passage, it should give us humility. This passage reminds us to remember that God is God, and we are not. God is the creator. He is infinite and powerful. Liam pointed out last week uh, that we've got good reason to trust God as God uh, because he is powerful, he is good, and he is wise. You can check out last week's if you want to get a bit more detail on that. Uh, And so because God is God, we need to be sure to keep him in his right place, to wrestle with the hard truths, but wrestle remembering who God is. Uh, And as we do that, I think I skipped one. Yeah, I lost a slide, but that's all right. Uh, as we do that, it should give us confidence. Uh, th- that's what we see, isn't it? If uh, it, it talks about mercy uh, being given to us, uh, not as something that is earned, it's not anything that we've done or deserve, and, and that's grace. That's how grace has to work. If God's mercy is tied to something that we've done, then it's not grace anymore, is it? It's, it's earned. And if it becomes something earned and something each of us 
uh, need to, to earn for ourselves, then it's ultimately something that we would fail in. That's been a, a huge theme through Romans. And so because God acts in grace, we can feel confident that his mercy is secure, that it's not something that we can lose uh, because God has chosen us. And so take confidence in that wonderful truth. Of course, one of the hardest aspects of this uh, is when we ask, what does it mean for others uh, who haven't come to follow Jesus yet? That's, that's where we, we feel the most angst. That's where Paul is feeling his anguish. Uh, and it's something we're going to be digging into much more next week. Uh, and so I'm going to ask you to hold on to those tough questions for then. Um, but for now, it's good for us to be thinking personally, to be holding on to the confidence that we have in the grace that we've been given. Uh, one uh, cause of distress, don't know what happened there, uh, uh, is that it's worth mentioning is that perhaps you hear all of this and it fills you with worry. And it fills you with worry because you're wondering, am I a Jacob or am I an Esau? Am I chosen or, or not? Uh, that is something that Paul will answer directly next week. But I, I want to just jump there uh, to calm perhaps some of those worries you might be feeling. Uh, I'm going to go to chapter 10, verse 9. It says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, and down to 13 as well. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have heard the good news of Jesus and responded by turning to follow him, you can be confident that God has given you his mercy. And so I want to finish by praying and giving thanks for that wonderful mercy that God has given us. Please join me. Lord, I, I just want to give you thanks. As we wrestle with this hard passage, as we try to work through the implications of it, uh, one thing is abundantly clear, that your mercy, your grace, is an incredible free gift, a gift that we've done nothing to earn or deserve. Uh, and so we thank you. We thank you that you, at great cost, gave us your mercy. And we thank you that we can be secure in that as one of your chosen people. And, and we pray that you would help us to rest in that wonderful grace, confident in living for Jesus. And we pray that in his wonderful name. Amen. Uh, now, as always, uh, we have question time. Uh, we've got a little bit of time up our sleeve. That's good. Um, but if there's too hard a question, we'll just all of a sudden run out of time. Just kidding. We control, just we control kidding. the mic. Um, just a, an observation for myself. I've often thought um, people like Charles Manson, that who later come to Jesus, that they really, you know, that's not fair because of all the awful things he did. But just something you just said then about if um, God had struck down all the people who sinned against Jesus at the cross, well, Saul would have been one of those people who died at that stage, and he was a really particularly brutal person himself, but he did, in the end, do great works for God. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't, wouldn't Paul say, I'm one of the worst of the sinners? Uh, and, and yet, God uses him uh, to demonstrate his mercy. Somebody. Well, just a bit hard to hear, Carol. Do you want to just point it a bit more directly yeah. at your mouth? 
if you are praying for somebody to be saved and to come to Jesus, and mm. they have, you don't know, but have they been already rejected? Are you wasting your time? Absolutely not, because we don't know. We don't know, and, we're, and that is something that we'll come to next week. Uh, so, so really interesting, as we talk about God's choice here in chapter 9, uh, the very next thing we get to is in chapter 10, where it's saying, how can they hear the good news unless someone preaches it? Uh, and so, so the, the application is to go and share the gospel. Uh, and so that's something we'll dig into next week. Um, I will recommend a book that I think is super helpful. I know there's a few floating around. I've got one with me today if you want to borrow it uh, by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And it plays those two, well, God's choice, our, our responsibility to evangelise, how do they work together. It's quite short and I found it really helpful. So if someone, Carol, or someone else wants to borrow that, you're very welcome to. I do have one that's come in that I haven't read yet. Uh, does verse 18 and on promote double predestination? Uh, so let me pop it up on screen if I can find it. Uh, where are we? Uh, there we go. So there's 18. Uh, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Uh, so the question is, is it not just that God chooses some to be saved but also uh, chooses some uh, to be condemned? Uh, and I, I guess those two kind of go hand in hand but there is some debate around that whether... Uh, whether God just chooses some to be saved, but he's not actually condemning. I land that, that yeah, he, he's actually choosing both ways. Uh, there, there is debate about that. Uh, I think it's, it's pretty clear in, in when we look at the Jacob and Esau. Uh, uh, I think that we can make too much of the hated, so... Uh, Jacob I loved Esau I hated uh, I think that hate is a bit like uh, uh, where Jesus says anyone who doesn't hate his family uh, and it, it's really about priority uh, so I, th I think it's a softer hate than we tend to read but but it's still a reality that one is chosen and, and one is chosen for mercy and one is chosen for judgment and and I think yeah, so I think that's what the Bible lends us to. That's a big question, but uh, that's that's where I personally land. I'm really happy to chat more over dinner if someone wants to keep talking about that. Uh, any more questions, Alan? Twenty-two um, or twenty-two, three and four. It's very complicated, and you brushed over it quickly. I, I it's hard to get my head around. Mm. Uh, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make his, the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles? It's confusing. Can you sort of... Elaborate that a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, if we run with the Pharaoh example, uh, the, there is we when we read through that Exodus story, it, it seems uh, odd almost that that God doesn't just deal with Pharaoh straight up when he says no. 
uh, yet there's this 10 plagues back and forth, uh, hardening, and it, oh, it seems like Pharaoh's going to give in. Oh, no, he doesn't, and God hardens his heart, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Um, uh, I think that it's telling us that drawn-out process uh, is showing more of who God is. It's demonstrating uh, his mercy. Uh, and so it, it becomes abundantly clear in that story who is in control, that, that Pharaoh, though he thinks he's in control, uh, over and over again gets overwhelmed by God's power. Uh, and so I think that's what, what it's getting at, is, is just uh, these tricky situations, and God does give patience, uh, and that's hard to wrap our heads around even in itself, because God is in one sense patient with Pharaoh though he also hardened his heart um, but it, it's really drawing out who God is uh, and his great mercy in the story does that help Ben Just uh, wondering a little bit around the, the role of the clay and the potter. And obviously, I think we all understand that, you know, the clay has no right to question the potter on the one hand. And yet, as human beings with reason, um, we could argue that God has given us the ability to question. Uh, and so, like, if we're wrestling and, and we want to keep asking those questions, there, there's got to be, I suppose, a level of, you know, um, standing back and recognizing God's authority for what it is, but isn't it is it wrong then to to spend a whole lot of our lives, if not all of our lives, <laughs> kind of um, shaking our fist at the potter and going, "Well, you did this, and that's okay, and I'm living this life, and I'm choosing to trust you," as complicated and difficult as it might be, is that is that a a wrong posture for a Christian? I suppose. Um, yeah. 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 Yeah, so I, I think there's a huge difference between questioning, how does this work, how does this fit with the God I know of love and mercy, uh, and coming to God saying you're wrong. Uh, so there's lots of uh, resonance in this section with the book of Job. I don't know if you've read the book of Job before. It's a very long book uh, where Job uh, knows nothing of the suffering that he goes through, and, and it's significant suffering. Uh, and he gets kind of bullied by his friends who say, no, no, you're a terrible sinner, that's why you're suffering, but he hasn't. Uh, and he's sort of asking these questions, and I think that's okay, but, but as it gets to the end, he, he becomes quite accusatory of God. Uh, he starts to demand of God uh, that he reveal and, um, and that, that he gets justice. Um, and that's where it becomes a problem. And God steps in in a very long-winded version of I am the potter, you are the clay. Of, you know, were you there when I, when I made the world? Were you, you know, did you... I can't remember any examples off the top of my head. But have a read. I think it's chapter 38. Really helpful. And it's just, it's that putting things in perspective. Uh, so I think it's, it's good. It's a really worthwhile thing for us to wrestle asking questions of how... Does this choice thing, how, or how does anything difficult we've come across in the Bible fit with the God that we know as a God who loves us, who sacrificed his son for us? Great questions to be asking. But we never want to fall to the accusing. 
thinking that we've, we've figured out something that God missed. And I think that's where it gets really dangerous. And I think we can come to a passage like this with a posture that says, I know what's right and I'm just going to find an explanation that fits with that instead of listing, well, well what does God have to say? Uh, and so that, I think that's the nudge. Not, it's definitely not a nudge not to question. I mean, the, the question is Paul anticipating, uh, the passage is Paul anticipating questions. That's a good thing. It's, it's our posture before God. Yeah. All right. Well, that's probably a good moment to finish. Uh, in tomorrow's email, there will be a bunch of resources. There was last week as well. I'll keep them in there for tomorrow that, that are recommendations. The book I mentioned before is one of them and a bunch of other things. Uh, great. If, if, if this is something you're pondering, you're trying to, you, you want to know more, this is a great moment. Uh, I think on the front of the handout, I said, strike while the iron's hot. While you're thinking about it, keep thinking about it. Keep digging in. We want to grow in this stuff. Um, and always, if you want to chat over dinner, I'm around. I'll uh, pass back over. <laughs>